Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. All right, um, first reading today is Genesis 2, verses 4 to 17. Page 3 on your pew Bibles. Isn't that nice? Right at the front. Okay. Um, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens... Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river water in the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the third is Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah where there is gold. The gold of the land land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river, river is Gion. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur. And the fourth river is Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat it, you will certainly die. Next verse is all the way at the back now. Revelations 22, 1 to 11. Page 1938. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night, there will be no need for the light of the lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angels to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, Don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you, and with your fellow prophets, and with all who keep the words of this scroll. Worship God. Then he told me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this scroll, because this time is near. Let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vile person continue to be vile. Let the one who does right continue to be right. And let the holy person continue to be holy. Thanks heaps, Nick. Appreciate it. Uh, Please keep Revelation 22 open in front of you as we come to the final of our time in the book of Revelation this morning. Um, 
As many of you know, today, I should have mentioned this before, today was meant to be Freedom Sunday as we focus on the work of International Justice Mission and highlight the, the work of justice around the world inspired by the, the good news of Jesus and God's uh, word. Uh, Dave Gronderbaum, who was going to join us for International Justice Mission, he's really unwell. Um, he's picked up a really nasty bug, possibly sort of a pneumonia type thing, which is really not great. And so we made a call, he's from Sydney, uh, we made a call earlier in the week just to kind of like draw a line under it for now, and we're going to move just uh, International, uh, sorry, Freedom Sunday to the 27th of November. Uh, so should the Lord tarry, and should you know, David get over his illness, we'll do it on the 27th of November. So please keep that in your diary. But today, uh, as a result of that, we're going to wrap up our series in the book of Revelation, uh, which we've been doing for about three and a half months or so on and off. Like I do all the time, I want you to talk to the person next to you about this kind of situation or, or question. What's your favourite novel? Or what's your favourite movie and why? What's your favourite novel? What's your favourite movie? Particularly novel. Have a talk to the person next to you. Not everyone's a reader, yeah, but what's your favourite novel? Have a quick chat to the person next to you and why do you love it? Go, have a quick chat, go. Lots of favourite novels out there, lots of maybe favourite movies as well. Anyway, keep that in the back of your minds as we, uh, again, come to the final instalment of our time in the book of Revelation, um, this last book as we have it in the Bibles around us. Um, should say this, if you're joining us for the first time today in the book of Revelation, massive apologies from me uh, for assuming heaps as we come to the end of our time in the book of Revelation. I should say as well, uh, the graphic you can see on the screen before us was designed by our very own Sam Gisaitis. Um And uh, so thanks, Sam, for your work. Um, it's always lovely. Um, yeah, it's great having people who know how to do good design around here because a lot of them, they, they save you from me, basically. There you go. Um, and my dodgy design, but thanks very much. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for all the good things you give us. Thank you for time together this morning. Uh, again, we pray with thanks for the privilege and the freedom that we have to, to gather in a way like this around your word and the power of the Spirit. We remember, uh, Father, this morning, there's many in our world, many of our brothers and sisters, for whom something like this is a real a longing they have which they can't experience because of persecution. And so we remember this morning, Father, uh, your children, your people, uh, in parts of the world where it's really hard to be a Christian. Father, may the freedom that we experience, uh, we, Father, may we use that to our advantage as we seek to make Jesus known. And may the courage of our brothers and sisters in the persecuted parts of the world May their courage, as they stand for Jesus, inspire us to be courageous and bold as well. So Father, teach us this morning through your word to be more like Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Um, right at the very beginning of our series in the book of Revelation, um, one of the more literary types from among us here at City Light Church, North Adelaide, put me on to what turns out to be one of the world's leading English critics. He's a professor of literature at Cambridge University, apparently massively influential. It's taken me all this time actually to get my head around his grand literary theory, which he articulated in this book, The Sense of an Ending. His name is Frank Commode. Um, 
Frank Commode's argument is basically that Christianity, and in particular the apocalyptic outlook of the book of Revelation, decisively shaped the Western novel, the way people, you and I, read fiction today. So prior to Christianity, Commode suggests in this particular book, most cultures had a sort of cyclical nature or belief or cyclical nature of history. Um, that was their view, that, that just as the seasons go round and round, so history goes round and round. You know, the Lion King, who loves the Lion King? You know, like the circle of life. Just things just kind of come and they go and they come and they go. So ancient pagans kind of believe that history and the universe just repeats over and over and over and over and over and over again in endless repetitive cycles. But with the advent of Christianity, people began to see the university and history not as an endless cycle, but as an unfolding story with an ending not completely known to us, but then can nonetheless be trusted. We have a sense of an ending, and that sense of, a, of an ending gives meaning to the unpredictable present. Commode argues in profound detail that the apocalyptic outlook of the Christian faith changed the Western world at the theoretical level, but also shaped the Western novel, both in its medieval forms, but also in its modern secular form that we read today. So Westerners, like most of us, now read fiction with an assumption, despite all the tensions and the tragedies and the uncertainties of the story, that everything will be resolved in the end. We have a sense of an ending that allows us to believe there is a rewarding climax in store for those who are patiently and willing to entrust themselves to the author's unfolding story. It's an amazing analysis, actually. And Frank Commode argues that Western, what is true of Western literature is absolutely true of Christian theology. The whole Bible, right, from Genesis all the way through to Revelation, and especially the book of Revelation, is designed to give us this sense of an ending. One that allows us to trust the author, despite the tragedies and the sadnesses of the world, to trust that the author will actually make good on his promises. That this sense of an ending gives meaning and perspective and shape in the face of changes and chances and uncertainties of life and entrusting ourselves to the one who will ultimately unfold his story of grace. What's true of Western literature, what's true of the book of Revelation is absolutely true of Revelation 22 as we come to the last chapter of the Bible this morning with all of its symbols of a river and a throne and so on. Um, I want you to say, I want, if you're a note taker and if you're just a listener here today, please don't panic. It's a seven point sermon this morning. Um, so if you had lunch plans, get on the phone. It's not happening, right? No. What I want you to do this morning is entrust yourself to the unfolding story of the preacher. That's what I want you to do this morning. And notice, if you have your Bibles open, Revelation 22 and verse 1, notice straight up the opening line of Revelation 22. Hope you have it open in front of you. Notice there's a river. And notice that this river of life flows from a very particular source. Verse 1, 
Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. What I want us to notice this morning is the source of this river of life. It flows from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Really specific. God and the Lamb. God as creator, of course, is the source of life, of breath and existence itself. And Jesus, the Lamb who was slain for our sins, is the source of new life, eternal life. He then is one image of a river of life flowing from God and the Lamb. It's kind of like a a picture of all of Christianity, right? From creation to redemption. We all have life from the Creator, yes? If you are breathing this morning, if your heart is beating, you are already experiencing the gift of life from your Creator. But there's also true eternal life that comes from the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the sacrifice for our sins on our behalf. See, Christianity isn't simply about revering or respecting or reverencing some sort of nebulous Creator which is kind of easy for most of us to do. Christianity also includes entrusting yourself to Jesus Christ, the source of eternal life, because of his sin-smashing death and his death-crushing resurrection. We're introduced to the, the river of life here right at the beginning of Revelation 22, and then we're introduced to a tree, the most famous tree in the Bible. Before we read Revelation 22, verse 2, because I'm a bit of an older man and I love old person's radio, 891 ABC radio, I learned today that Australia's favourite tree is the river red gum. There you go. There you go. Just a spurious fact for you to take away from church today. Um, There you go. Amongst all the trees in the world that we love, we love the river red gum the most. Here, though, is the Bible's most famous tree. Take a look at it. Verse 2, chapter 22, second half. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit. There's 12 again, brothers and sisters. See, 12 church. Really, it's No, anyway. Yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. Of course, this recalls the Garden of Eden, which is why Nick read from Genesis chapter 2 at the beginning before Now, the symbolism in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, that the tree of life is at the center of the garden, and it's the most potent symbol, right? It's a potent symbol that human beings are not inherently immortal, that we must actually eat from the tree of life in order to be sustained in our ongoing existence. Adam and Eve, if you know the story, they were allowed to eat from the tree, But there was also a tree they weren't allowed to eat from, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, this doesn't simply mean knowing good and evil. The idea of eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in Genesis is about choosing good and evil for yourself, determining what is good and what is evil for ourselves. Not just knowing right from wrong, but us determining what we believe is right and wrong. And if you know and you can remember the story, Adam and Eve... They exactly did what they weren't meant to do. They ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They ate from that tree, and in other words, they enacted their own moral paradigm. They created what was right and wrong, rather than listening to what God said was right and wrong. And as a result, a curse fell on them. 
rather than life, they then face death. And the whole of creation suffered from that same curse. And they were banished from the garden, banished from the presence of God. And Genesis 3 reminds us that at the gateway to the garden, something is now blocking our access to the tree of life. Anyone remember what's blocking our access to the tree of life? Anyone know? Flaming, yeah, nice work, angels and flaming swords. There you go. Well done, Nicole, beautiful. Front row, see, genius, no. Yeah, a flaming sword flashing back and forth, guarding the way for humanity to get to the tree of life. And so now we're not allowed to eat from the tree of life. They're banished. And the question that we're left with at the end of Genesis chapter 3 is, and that the rest of the Bible answers for us is, how do we get back there? How do we get around the sword and back to the tree of life? And the answer the Bible gives is that one would bear the sword on our behalf. Jesus would take the penalty. Jesus would take upon himself the curse through his death on the cross so that we can again access ongoing life through faith in Jesus and God. And that's what's at the centre of this vision of God's future kingdom, the tree of life, which we can now eat from, the curse removed. Did you notice verse 3? No longer will there be any curse because we have access to the tree of life again. We will continue then upriver, the river of life, the tree of life, and now we pass up, pass the tree up to the throne. Verse three, second half. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There'll be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. What's the first thing that happens before the throne of God and of the Lamb? What's the first thing that happens? Worship. Worship. It's quite clear. They will serve him. The word serve, latruo, means worship. Bowing our whole lives before God and the Lamb. I love what St. Augustine says um, way back in the 5th century about worship. It's really clarifying. He says this, Man um, is one of your creatures, he writes, Lord, and his instinct is to praise you. The thought of you stirs him so deeply that he cannot be content until he prays, unless he praises you. Because you made us for yourself, and our hearts find no peace until they rest in you. Worship of God is not enslavement. It's what we were made for. We were saved to serve. We were made to worship. There's this lovely statement in this verse that we will see God face to face. This speaks of intimacy with God, not enslavement, not fear. Um, those of you who know your Bibles well will know that it, we see multiple times through the Scriptures this phrase, no one can see God and live. You know that one? And yet here in this climactic chapter of the Bible, when we come into the fullness of God's kingdom, we will see God face to face for life and enjoy him forever. Worship is what we're made for. 
But we don't just worship, right? We rule. See that little throwaway line, end of verse 5? And they, the redeemed people of God, will reign forever and ever. We're not just like bowing before God for eternity all the time. We're reigning. We're sharing in his rule. Again, for those of us who know the Bible really well, uh, this, of course, recalls the opening kind of chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, and particularly the first thing we ever hear about humanity in the creation narrative Chapter 1, verse 26 of Genesis, we read, God said, let us make mankind in our image. That's like Father, Son, and Spirit. Let us, the Trinity's there. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule. And so it's not surprising that in the climax of the new creation, we're not just falling down before God all day. We are in some mysterious ways, brothers and sisters, princes and princesses of the king, sharing in his reign over all things. The river of life, past the tree, up to the throne, in this unfolding story. And then there's a pause. Then there's a pause. There's a pause in this big vision that John has and the angel who's been mediating this message from God the Father through the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to the angel, to John and then to the churches, the angel who's been mediating this message to John speaks, talks directly to John. It's a bit out there. Look at Revelation chapter 22, verse 6. Verse 6, the angel confirms the trustworthiness of all that he's been saying. Verse Seven, he then quotes Jesus, look, I'm coming soon, remember? But the main thing I want you to notice in this section is the strange admission in verses eight and nine that John fell down and worshipped the angel. Well, let's think about this for a second, right? The, the apostle John, he was pretty good at theology, right? You know, give him a test and he'll probably get 100%, I reckon, most of the time. He was there with Jesus. He was, sorry, you know, like he was pretty good at theology, what does he do? He bows down to an angel. Verse 8, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I'd heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, the angel said to him, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your fellow prophets and with all who keep the words of this scroll. Worship God. I love that John inserts here in the book of Revelation his big theological oops to quote Paul Nassino. Where's Paul Nassino? He's out there. He's overwhelmed. Yeah, I was meeting up with Paul this week and we read through this chapter and he goes, oh, isn't it interesting how there's this like massive oops from John? I'm like, hey, Paul, I'm just quoting you, brother. There he comes. He heard his ears. His ears were, it's really cool. This massive theological oops. I love it. And it's a kind of object lesson, right, of one of the massive themes of the book of Revelation. Be careful who you worship. Be careful who you worship. I've said this countless times that the great temptation of the people who first received the word of Revelation back in the first century, about 90 AD, this group of God's people, or seven groups of God's people living in what is modern-day Turkey, the great temptation for them was to bow down to the statue of the Roman emperor on pain of death. 
There were statues of the emperors and Roman rule all over this particular part of the world. And you were to bow down to these statues if you were to be a loyal citizen. So isn't this a lovely reminder? If you can't bow down before an angel authorised by the living God to speak on his behalf, you sure can't bow down before a pagan leader. Be careful who you worship. Be careful what you worship. Including the gods of wealth, of health, of status, popularity, profit, pleasure, family, or even the self. Be careful who you worship. Presumably, John gets straight back up on his feet. Oh, yeah, right, that's right. Yep, first commandment, only worship the living God. Right, got it. Straight back up on his feet, and then the angel delivers the message, verse 10 and 11. Then he told me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this scroll, because the time is near. Let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vile person continue to be vile. Let the one who does right continue to do right. Let the holy person continue to be Holy. I admit this little bit sounds a little odd at first, a bit strange. Why on earth would the angel say to John and therefore to us, look, just, just let the wicked carry on. Let them just carry on. Um, as you were, wicketing. Get on with your wicketing. Tyrants, continue. Despots, keep despotting. You know, like that's what he kind of, did you get that? What's this about? Well, we'll see in a moment, right, when we look at verse 17 of this chapter, this can't be some kind of theological or salvation lockout, right? Because verse 17 has the most beautiful, stunning, open invitation to anyone who is thirsty to come and drink the water of life. Can't mean that. So what does it mean? I think verse 11 has a specific kind of rhetorical function, urging believers to remember, for us to remember, don't fret. Don't fret that you can't change the world as you'd hoped. Don't fret that you aren't able to change all the tyranny in this world. You just worry about what you're to worry about. Doing right. Being holy. It's not to say that we're not called to identify where there's injustice and seek to overcome it. The idea is to not fret. In some ways, this is very much like the famous serenity prayer. I don't know if you know the serenity prayer. Anyone know the serenity prayer? It's used by Alcoholics Anonymous a lot and other sort of support groups of a similar kind of nature. Um, It's actually written, authored originally by the famous US theologian um, Reinhold Niebuhr. Um, Often it's only the first stanza of the prayer that's used in the meetings or the support groups. There's a wonderful second stanza. Listen to this. This is the, the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change and the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. That's the, often the first bit that's used in these, opportun- in these groups. But then he goes on. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as a pathway to peace, taking as Jesus did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will. 
so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. Amen? Amen. There are some things, there are some people who can't change, who we can't change. Let them be. But for the rest, the beautiful invitation remains open. And we're now going to read the rest of the book of Revelation from verse 12 to 21. And Nick is going to come back up and read that for us. Thanks, brother. Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent to my, my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears this say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. And if anyone takes words away from this scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this scroll. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Um, if, you're, uh, if you're a note taker, we're about to hit point five. We've, uh, we've traveled uh, river of life. Uh, we've gone past the tree, up to the throne. We've paused. We've been reminded, be careful what you worship, who you worship. And now we come into this next part, point five. There's so much to take in here. Um, in the build-up to this beautiful invitation in verse 17, uh, let me just point out a few things before we zero in on that wonderful invitation. Um, first, we're reminded of Jesus' status as the divine Lord and therefore the judge of all the earth. In verses 12 and 13, we have these extraordinary statements about Jesus. Uh, verses 12 and 13, Look, Jesus says, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. These words are the climax of an extraordinary, extraordinary accumulation or stacking up of titles for God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son. And here's how it pans out. If we go right back to Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, um, it's God who is described or says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. And then in chapter 1, verse 17, it's Christ who says, I am the first and the last, which kind of sounds pretty uh, similar, right? But not identical. And then right to the end of the book, chapter 21, verse 6, it's God, the Lord speaking, who says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And now in chapter 22, it's Jesus himself who says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the first and the last, the beginning and the end. It's this deliberate accumulation and piling up of incredible titles that belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, reminding us that Jesus is the sovereign Lord. We have to confront the fact that Jesus is not just a really nice guy 
or that he was a really good teacher. How we can get that simply from scripture, I don't know. It's impossible here. He is the Lord God. And it's as the divine Lord that he comes with his divine reward. Verse 12, I'm coming with my reward. And then in verses 14 and 15, the reward is explained. There's a positive aspect to the reward and a negative. The positive, verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Then there's negatively, verse 15, those who pursue evil without repentance, that is, without turning back to God, will remain outside. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Pretty much repeats what we saw last week. There's no way to interpret the book of Revelation as meaning that everyone will be saved in the end. Some will be lost. Those who reject the good without repentance will get their wish, exclusion from the kingdom. And so we cry, verse 17, come, Jesus, come. It says, doesn't it, the spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, and the bride, that's the church, they say, come. And then it says, let the one who hears all this, that's the people of God listening to the book of Revelation, we join in saying, come. What's this saying? It's just saying, come with your reward, Lord. Come and overthrow tyranny and injustice. Come and bring judgment on the the despots and the tyrants. Come and make all things new again. Come. Purge this world of evil and sin and all that spoils. Come. I was going to say this last week, but I didn't, so I'll say it now. I think one of the things that makes the book of Revelation challenging for us, or maybe has made the book of Revelation challenging for us as we've looked at it, is in part the the language, the apocalyptic language. We're not really used to that genre of literature. So we've had to sort of think hard and get our heads around that literature. I think that's been, I think it's been good. I've really enjoyed the imaginativeness of the apocalyptic genre. But that's hard to get our heads around at times. And we haven't, we can't understand everything. But I think we've done pretty well. I think the the second thing that makes it really hard for us is that when we hear language in the book of Revelation of those who do evil being thrown into lakes of burning sulfur or those who practice all these different things being cast out forever, I think we find that really challenging. Partly because I think when we hear those ideas of judgment, we automatically think of, I don't know, the lovely neighbour next door who doesn't yet trust Jesus. We think, oh, that's not right. Or we think of, I don't know, dear Aunt Beryl, who in her whole 98 years has never, as far as I can see, heard a fly. How is that fair? One of the challenges for us living here in Adelaide, pretty comfortable, pretty easygoing, We are not confronted with serious evil, most of us. 
We don't face tyrannical leaders threatening our lives every day of our existence. And so when we hear these words of judgment, we're like, oh, no, 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 not fair. But again, for the people living in the first century, who to live daily was hard, who lived on threat of death every day, Here's wonderful hope, right? That one day the tyrants will be gone. One day all evil will be dealt with. And one day, free to walk with my Lord, without fear, without tears, without pain. We've got to not make that false step at the beginning by thinking about those sort of right next to us, although they are part of it, but to think about those bigger things. I hope that's helpful. And so, as the people of God, we long for the Lord to make all things new, yes? And so we cry, come. And perhaps we should cry it more often, right? Come, Lord Jesus, come. And then we hear this profoundly beautiful invitation, this profound sense of an ending. Verse 17. Let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. Just soak that up. Soak it up. The free gift of the water of life. If you recall last week, we heard something really similar last week, chapter 21, verse 6. Hear this lovely statement. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Now just to be a bit sort of nerdy and get a bit of Greek on, um, the adverb used here, the word freely, is the word dorian, without cost. Without cost. And if you're a bit geeky and greeky, um, you'll know this, right, that if you, in Greek syntax, if you place the word that you place right at the end of the sentence is placed there for a particular reason, it's to add emphasis or emphasis, whichever you want to go, and um, the last word of this sentence is the word freely. Come and drink the water of life freely. Didn't hear any Dorians there. That's fair enough. It's exactly the same idea here in chapter 22, verse 17. It's exactly the same word, and it's exactly at the end of the sentence. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life altogether now freely. Amen. See, for the arrogant and for the unrepentant, there is judgment and there is exclusion. But for the thirsty, for the repentant, there is life and intimacy freely. Don't you just want me to end the sermon there? Don't you just want me, oh, after this beautiful, comforting, lovely, free gift of salvation, do you just want to go, yeah, amen, let's just sing. Please don't give us another warning. And that's exactly what we get, though, in verse 18. 
Have a look, verse 18. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. And verse 19, if anyone takes words away from this scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this scroll. My question is, why, John? Like, why? Why would you put this warning here at this point? After such a beautiful invitation of salvation, would there be such a depressing warning against meddling with this book? Why? I must admit, as your lead pastor, this was one of those times, as a preacher, as a lead pastor, I felt like doing a little bit of meddling, yeah? At least skipping over this bit and hoping you wouldn't notice. But you know, the more I've thought about it, the more I'm convinced that we... We should be profoundly thankful for this warning. Because here's the thing. Adding to or subtracting from this final book of the Bible, I think would and could imperil someone's salvation. And let's be clear, this warning actually isn't directed at most of you. It's it's directed not mostly at the congregation. I think it's directed mainly at people like me, an overseer, a leader, I think it's directed at Sam holding a beautiful sleeping baby. I had this effect on people. Like I can put people to sleep as I talk. Anyway, I think it's directed at Sam. I think it's directed at Phil potentially coming on as an elder. Because only the elders really have the opportunity in a local church to adjust what you hear, right? And, and it's... And in its ancient context, you've got to imagine, right, that this scroll coming, like dictated by, you know, from God through Jesus, dictated by the angel, written down by John as he sits in, you know, jail on Patmos. The scroll goes from Patmos, it arrives in the city of Ephesus, where the scroll would have literally been copied out seven times and distributed to the different seven churches. And at that point, or at any point when that scroll was received, I don't know, at the church at Laodicea or Sardis or Philadelphia, when the elder receives it and thinks about reading it out to the people, the elder could just like scratch out a line or just leave out a line. You wouldn't know. And modern leaders can do the same thing by choosing what we will or won't preach on. We can leave some bits out, maybe difficult bits, just move them to the side. The warning is a safeguard against theological innovation and hobby horses. I don't know. Imagine some moralizing elder in Sardis, right? Not liking the word Dorian, not liking the word freely, repeated twice in the end, because they want to emphasize the strict moral demands of the gospel. None of this free grace business. And all they have to do is go, oh, Dorian, scratch it out and leave believers with this really oppressive sense that they've got to earn the water of life would be simple. Or imagine an elitist living in Laodicea who didn't appreciate the critique of wealth back in chapter three and by addition of a few words could just hint that actually to be wealthy is to be blessed by God. Or imagine some other elder who didn't like the idea of martyrdom, this massive theme that runs through the book of of Revelation and with a few additions or subtractions, 
could sort of suggest that under certain circumstances, it's actually important and right to take revenge against Rome rather than to patiently endure, be faithful, knowing that the victory is coming. The examples are endless. The danger is clear. By adding to or subtracting from, we can ruin the gospel of God's grace and its ethical implications. Praise God, yeah, that this warning is here. I don't know, it'd be like a treacherous NASA engineer who changes a few parameters at the rocket launch. I don't know, tweaks a few numbers from 3.7 to 4.1. Boom, you know, gone. Or a medico or a nurse who just slightly adjusts the patient's medical charts. Change the dosage. Could go badly. And surely, brothers and sisters, the stakes are infinitely higher for the final book of God's word to us a book designed to give us our sense of an ending that allows us to walk through the tyrannies and the pain and the grief and the sadness and the joys and the hardships of this world trusting in God. See, this book tells us about the unfolding story of God's grace, about Jesus' sacrifice for sin so that we can be forgiven, so that we can know how to live in and love a fallen world. Tells us about Christ's resurrection, the proof and pledge that God intends to and will make all things new. Such a book must never be changed. And with all that in mind, I reckon the Apostle John thought long and hard about what he'd say in the final line. What would end up actually being the final line of the revealed word of God, the Bible? The final line of God's story. I know you think of John on Patmos. He's delivered this amazing vision. He's ended with this invitation to take the free water of life freely then he drops this warning in that should never be changed. And then I reckon he's like, what, how should I finish it? What would make this a good end? For all the things he could have said. Keep going. Hang in there. Keep trusting Jesus. He's coming soon. They're all good things. But look what he does. He shares a word that takes all the emphasis off us and off our performance and places it all on God and what he's done for us. See the word? Grace. Grace. I know the book of Revelation is a bit obscure, it's a bit weird at a literary level, but its message is straight down the line. It's the same message as the whole Bible. Grace. The free gift of life and mercy. The over-the-top, unhinged action of God to spoil his creatures. You see, in the end, the thing that will secure you in God's story is not your subjective sense of an ending, although that is important. What secures you in God's unfolding story, what secures you in God's eternal kingdom is his objective 
grace. What he has done for you. And so I end this series as John intended it to end with the final word of the word of God. Verse 21. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the journey that you've taken us on over these past three and a bit months as we've together looked at this final book of your Bible, the book of Revelation. Thank you, Father, for the way that your spirit has been at work, pointing us to the work and the person of your son, the Lord Jesus. Father, thank you for the picture that we've seen of Christ. Not, not only the humble servant coming into the world to lay down his life for the sins of the world, but Lord, we've also been so thankful for this majestic vision of our Jesus coming again in majesty to reign forever and ever. And Father, thank you for the reminder that a day is coming soon where you will make all things new. Father, help us as your people to get busy bringing the new creation into being even now, but ever hopeful for its fulfilment in the future. Father, we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. Father, help us. Father, help us and keep us, Father, in the hope that we've grasped. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.